race is to some people a biological, but mostly a social category. It's something that they have always identified with. We can't help but look at color. There is no such thing as color blindness. So you have people, especially in the major cities, who have ancestors from three or four continents. What do you call them? You call them a human being. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Dr. Nina Jablonski is Evan Pugh University Professor of Anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University. A biological anthropologist and paleobiologist, she studies the evolution of adaptations to the environment in old-world primates, including humans. For the last 25 years, she has pursued questions in human evolution not directly answered by the fossil record, foremost among these being the evolution of human skin and skin pigmentation. In addition to her scholarly articles on skin, Dr. Jablonski has written two popular books, Skin, A Natural History, published in 2006, and Living Color, The Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color, published in 2012. Dr. Jablonski received her B.A. in biology at Bryn Mawr College and her Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Washington. She is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, an elected member of the American Philosophical Society, and a member of the Board on Behavioral, Cognitive, and Sensory Sciences of the U.S. National Research Council. A long list of her most recent accomplishments includes an honorary doctorate from University of Stellenbosch in South Africa for her contribution to the worldwide fight against racism. Currently, she's collaborating on the development of new approaches to science education in the United States, which have the dual aims of improving the understanding of evolution and human diversity and stimulating interest among students in pursuing STEM courses and careers. Dr. Nina Jablonski, welcome to Appalachian and welcome to Sound Effect. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. So you're a scholar of evolution, and I was wondering if you could talk about the evolution of your scholarship. What a wonderful question. My scholarship has evolved in much the same way that biological systems have evolved, with a certain amount of randomness and a certain amount of direction. The randomness came in from the fact that I've never had a particularly set idea about what I wanted to do, but I've always pursued things that were interesting to me in my heart and mind. And so, you know, I never got up one morning and said, I have to be an anthropologist. It, it just sort of happened. And I have been an, oh, a voracious reader all of my life. And one thing led to another. And as a child, I was fascinated by the natural world. I walked around out of doors all the time. And living in upstate New York, I collected fossils that were occurring naturally outside my doorstep, literally. When I was a kid, my father taught me about life in ancient times and that I was actually living on a sea that was 350 million years old. Now, I didn't know what a million years meant, but it just boggled my youthful mind. I found these fossils so beautiful and so intensely interesting that I wanted to learn more about ancient life. Then, when I was about 14 in eighth grade, I got really interested in human evolution after watching a program about Lewis and Mary Leakey at Olduvai Gorge on the television. And I thought, oh my goodness, you mean I can study human evolution, study what humans did in the past? 
And so to make a long story short, I have pursued that line for most of my life with great enjoyment, with some ups and downs and detours. But my specific areas of interest have followed opportunities. I love paleontology. I continue to do paleontology to this day. I study the evolution of old world primates, including humans, but my my inner love is the evolution of monkeys. And in recent years, I've spent a lot of time studying aspects of human evolution that aren't easily represented or known in the fossil record. I've become fascinated by these because some of these these things, whether they be skin or whether they be behaviors, are extremely important to our understanding of human evolution. And so I try to use as many tools possible from comparative biology, uh, meteorology, paleontology, biochemistry, all sorts of different fields to try to understand what we looked like in the past, how we acted in the past, and how we interacted with our environments in the past. It's been a great ride. Wow. So can you talk about how what you learn about the past or what you have learned about the past impacts today and how we interact societally today? I think one of the fascinating things about looking at humans in an evolutionary context is that you realize that we have undergone extremely rapid changes in the last few thousand years as a result of accelerated cultural evolution. So our biological evolution was quite rapid. Our species emerged, Homo sapiens, around 200,000 years ago. We became sedentary, agriculturally based people for the most part around eight to 10,000 years ago. But since then, we've taken off like Usain Bolt on a trajectory of increasing cultural and technological change. And this has led to tremendous cultural advances, our ability to communicate with one another instantaneously, abilities to convey our thoughts and feelings in many forms, scientifically, artistically. I mean, the pace and rate of human evolution has never been greater. But what this also means is that we've engaged in a lot of things for which we had no prediction. So we've done a lot of stuff without thinking about any of the consequences. In my own work on skin and skin pigmentation, I think a lot about what has happened as the result of many of the recent migrations and changes in lifestyle that humans have undertaken just in the last few hundred years. When we've been able to move so much faster and so much farther, and where boundaries between countries have been porous enough to allow movements. And so now we have people from all over the place living all over the place. And this literally has changed the face, the human face of the earth. And we have to think about this from social biological and health perspectives. And sort of I see it as my job is to try to put modern humans in all their exuberant innovativeness into this evolutionary context. 
Your bio references an initiative you're leading called the Effects of Race program. Can you talk about the process and also the goals for that project? This is a big project being undertaken in South Africa, which, along with the United States, is one of the countries that has been most riven in the last several hundred years by issues related to race and stark prejudice related to race. In South Africa, like in the United States, there was in the past enforced segregation based on color mostly and ancestry. And this now, although has been legally relaxed in both countries, continues to be a major obstacle to human education and economic advancement. In the Effects of Race project at the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study, we've brought together scientists, social scientists, humanitarian thinkers, artists, photographers, all sorts of intensely creative people who are interested in trying to figure out how we can break out of the trenchant and reinforcing racial stereotypes that we seem to be caught in, in South Africa and more generally in the world. How can we rethink, reset, and get ourselves out of these these real difficult seeming impasses in society? And so, this is, this is a challenging initiative because this is not a popular thing to talk about. Even in a country like South Africa, where race is virtually always on the front page, and in a country like the United States, where race is always part of our thinking, even if not on the front page, race is something that people feel consummately uncomfortable in talking about most of the time. So bringing it into sort of polite company and, in fact, impolite company, bringing it out into the open, getting people to talk about it, getting kids to talk about it in the classroom, getting people to talk about it in all sorts of contexts as they're growing up with their relatives, in all sorts of classrooms, with their teachers. This is tough stuff. And so we're trying to think about how we can create new educational initiatives in rural schools and in urban universities in South Africa, how we can create new modes of engaging students in dialogue with themselves and with teachers, how we can get them to feel energized about being who they are, about exploring the limits of their minds without any heed to their racial classification. In other words, we're trying to explore how to unlock human potential in the 21st century, in a century that was born under the shackles still of race labels. So this relates really well to my next question, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, some of your work related to improving the understanding of science in the U.S. includes curriculum development work for teaching genetics Mm -hmm. and genealogy to K-12 and undergraduate Mm -hmm. students. You know, our university's history at Appalachian is based on teaching future educators. Our alumni are teaching in every county in North Carolina and far beyond. Um, So what do you think is important to teach future teachers of secondary uh, secondary school children about race as it relates to genetics and genealogy? I think one of the important things to think about is, and I'm not saying that young teachers or teachers of teachers should throw away the rule books, but they need to think about when they themselves were children, 
What did they want to know about what they looked like and why other people looked the way they did? These enduring questions have to be answered, and they have to be answered in the home and in the school sooner rather than later. I've talked to a lot of educators who have said to me, oh, we really can't broach something like race and skin color evolution because those concepts are just too abstract, too difficult. Parents will push back. And I say, hold on. These are very simple concepts when you take them and dissect them out and look at their origins. And actually, they're easy to talk about when we relax and talk about basic facts, facts of evolution and facts of human history. And when kids have this knowledge, and I'm talking about when little kids, six, seven, and eight, have this knowledge, it's like, whoa, what's the problem? And when they grow up and learn a little bit more, when they get more scientific background and can learn a little bit more about why skin colors evolved the way they did, why other features of our bodies evolved to be as they are, why people have the pattern of interaction that they have developed over the last few centuries. These bodies of knowledge can be built on a foundation that is started very early in life. So I guess what I'm calling for is a, is a minor revolution based on the fact that we cannot continue any longer to have children in the United States who are ignorant of this information, who are ignorant of their own evolutionary history, who are ignorant of their own past and how people have judged them or thought about them in the past. This is part of our legacy, and we will enhance the creativity and potential of every young person if we can give them this little pot of information that can eventually set them free on their own intellectual and psychological journeys. Yeah, it seems odd, really, when you break it down, what we choose to focus on to emphasize difference, because we're all distinctly different from one another. And the basics of what we seek to explain about human physical diversity, for instance, is something that can be explained in simple declarative sentences without detailed knowledge of DNA structure or human physiology or paleoclimatology. This is simple, straightforward stuff, and it's exciting, and kids want to know about it. It's fun to learn. And that positive curiosity is something that we always have to consider how we can unleash is there some sort of biological reason that we use skin color as a way of categorizing ourselves? Skin color is the most obvious physical characteristic. We notice skin color just because we're visual primates. We notice everything about what another person looks like. We look at their skin. We look at their hair. We try to judge sort of where they came from, how old they are, what sex they belong to, you know, what's, uh, what's their style. We are visual beings, and so we can't help but look at color. There is no such thing as color blindness in any strict sense. But what we do with that sort of bare perception of color, that's the really interesting part. Because, of course, we, on the basis of our acculturation and what we have been taught and what we have observed in others, 
can make judgments and assessments about color, about the color of somebody's sweater, about the color of their eyes, and about the color of their skin. So I think we need to recognize that we are visual. We pay attention to these things. But then the weight, the judgments, the assessments are based on our acculturation and our socialization. And this occurs when we're little kids and continues on through our youth and into early adulthood. So that by the time we get to be young adults, let's say Appalachian State University students, we have certain operational stereotypes in our head. And some of these help us in our day-to-day lives to get things done because we can just, you know, immediately sort of understand, oh, I need to speak to that person perhaps a little bit more slowly, or I need to help that person get into the car because they're a little bit old or whatever. But we also need to examine the stereotypes that can unfairly prejudice our subsequent interactions with people. And these kinds of things, the kind of implicit bias that we carry with us is what I really want to combat through my educational efforts for young people and for adults. So here at Appalachian, we are, um, like a lot of colleges across the nation, we're having these discussions in private and in public and small settings and large ones, demonstrations in the boardroom about social justice and equity. At our institution, this includes a lot of discussion about increasing the diversity of our community here, um, students, faculty, staff. And one of the things we do to help figure out where we are and where we need to be is we track demographic information, including race and ethnicity. And we ask people to fill out forms and check boxes. And sometimes that can be a, a distressing process for people to do that. You know, kind of recognizing this, I've been thinking a lot more lately about what it means to check a form, you know, a box on a form to identify myself in a certain way. And uh, yesterday I get this American community survey in my mailbox from the U.S. Census Bureau and I look at these questions and, uh, you know, it's just they're taking on a whole new meaning for me, um, given the discussions we've had on campus lately, given kind of the some of the research that, that we've been doing. And so I was just wondering if you don't mind um, if we can just look at this survey together for a minute. Um, so it says it takes about 40 minutes to complete, and I got stuck on question five, um, which says um, to answer both questions five about Hispanic origin and question six about race. So for this survey, it says Hispanic origins are not race. So the question reads, is this person of Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish origin? So you can choose no, not of Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish origin. Yes, Mexican, Mexican-American, Chicano. Yes, Puerto Rican. Yes, Cuban. Then you have a whole slew of other options that they suggest you might be able to fill in the box with, including Argentinian, Colombian, Dominican, Nicaraguan, Salvadoran. So then we get to the question about race, and it says, what is your race? Mark one or more boxes, white, black, or African-American, American Indian, or Alaskan Native. And then you can fill in uh, your enrolled principal tribe. Asian, Indian, Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Native Hawaiian. Um, you can go to Samoan. There are other Pacific Islanders, and they give you a slew of options there. So it just goes on and on. Now, for me, that's pretty easy because I check a box and I move on. But I just started thinking about what this is like, this process of going through this. And then I start thinking, you know, there's a mishmash on here. There's color. There's ethnicity. There's heritage. And, you know, I, my thought was, well, I'll have my children answer this online because it'll be a great experience for them to go through. And then I thought, what if one of them came to me and said, Mom, what's race? I don't think I could answer that question succinctly. I'm not sure I could answer it accurately. And so 
having the opportunity to speak with an expert about this, <laughs> my question to you is, what is race? Race is one of the most difficult categories for purposes of a definition that has ever been devised by humanity. Race is a biological term when you're talking to zoologists and botanists. It's, it's a specific kind of organism that belongs to a specific taxonomic category of organism. When you talk to humans, race is, to some people, a biological but mostly a social category. It's something that they have always identified with. They can't put their fingers on it. It's something that they learned from their parents, or it's something that they came to feel comfortable in identifying with. It is, for all practical purposes, for most people in the United States and in many other countries, it's a category into which they feel some, some comfort. It has, to, to many people, a biological element yeah, I sort of have this kind of ancestry and I sort of look like this and those people used to be called, you know, European or African race. But I also come from a particular, you know, ethnic heritage and people sort of identify in this particular way and they've spoken these particular languages. It is an unholy mishmash of biological, cultural, linguistic identifying terms. That doesn't help you very much operationally, but all I can say is that most people feel that they belong to a certain race and that they feel that it's important, or some people also feel that it's not important to them, but they tend to have sort of a definite feeling about whether race is something that is useful to them. Often people are proud of belonging to a particular race, and they take pride in the accomplishments of their race. And sometimes people are not proud and simply want to sort of, you know, say, well, I guess people would say I'm this race or that race, but I'm going to move on because it doesn't have any meaning to me. What I can say is that since the institution of the newer census methodology of being able to check more than one box, that people have been checking more than one box. It used to be one box only. Now you can check as many boxes as you feel represents you. And I think that's very exciting because people who wouldn't necessarily talk to their friends or their acquaintances or their teachers about race and race identification will be very comfortable in filling out a confidential U.S. government form and say, yeah, I belong to all of these groups, and that's the future of my identification. It's messy, and I'm happy that it's messy. So we have this ability to gather and categorize and subcategorize data, um, including demographic information, and um, these capabilities seem to be increasing on a daily basis. But I also wonder, as a society, do you think we're becoming less tolerant of categorization? Maybe that is what that means when you get to check. Yes, I think we definitely are becoming less tolerant. And part of this is because in our country, there are more people who represent complex mixtures of ethnicities and 
old-fashioned races. So you have people, especially in the major cities, who have ancestors from three or four continents. What do you call them? You call them a human being. And so many young people are basically saying, oh, blow this, you know, these categories. I just, I can't, I can't relate to this. I am me. I am a human being. Take me as I am. You know, and someday I'm going to dress, you know, like this particular style, and some days I'm going to look like this, and that is me. Take me as a human being. And this is extremely healthy. What many governments don't like is that people are pushing back against categorization. Many governments like categories for all sorts of good and bad reasons. In South Africa, for instance, they hope that continued categorization of people will allow for some economic restitution of past injustices. Probably that's not the case very much, but at least that's the theory of why racial categories and boxes, serious boxes, have been retained there. In this country, the box-checking thing, I think, is gradually on its way out. It continues to serve some purpose to track demographic trajectories, but I think quite soon, possibly not in my lifetime, but in the next 50 years, we will simply see those boxes disappear and be replaced by other boxes that look at people's self-assigned economic status. How do you feel about your economic status? Do you feel that you have had difficulties due to your ancestry or background? And that there may be you know, a whole series of boxes related to economic privation or lack of privation. And this actually might be more useful to the U.S. government than the current melange of weird colors and ethnicities that are now there. What should be the role of higher education leadership in changing attitudes related to skin color and race? I think higher education experts and future teachers need to not be fearful about talking about a formerly very sensitive topic. Because the more that we shy away from questions of physical diversity and origins of physical diversity, the more sensitive the questions become. When these issues can be addressed quite satisfactorily within a scientific framework, not as if there is a, a definite you know, theory that has definite answers and this is the end of the discussion, but as a continuing scientific investigation and dialogue as to why we look the way that we do. I think this is very exciting to students. So my feeling is that in higher education, we have the opportunity and, in fact, the responsibility to bring this into our classrooms, whether we're teaching sociology or biology or jurisprudence and education, and talk about human diversity. Where did it come from? What does it mean? What does it mean biologically? What does it come to mean in terms of social privilege or stigmatization? the open discussions that can be encouraged at a higher education level will filter down. Our teachers have to be confident spokespeople, not reluctant, not worried about parental uh, feedback or societal feedback. We have to enter an era when we are bold 
about changing society's attitudes toward color and race. And it can't begin in any better place than in an institution dedicated to the teaching of teachers. Dr. Jablonski, we so appreciate your taking the time to come by the studio today and talk with us. You'll be speaking to our university community this evening, and your presence on our campus is a really key component to the work that we are doing, the work that we need to do, and what our university community will become. So thank you so much for your time and just sharing your important work with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I hope that you can continue all your great work at this university. You're just fantastic. Thank you so much. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.